Hello. Hello. We're back. Welcome back to Infinite Cast. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Let's fucking rock and roll. Let's read a book. Uh, so where we, we're going to get right into it. Where we last left off was in the middle of a several pages long paragraph of our new friend Ken Ederly. Ken Erdetti. Or Ken, Ken Erdetti uh, having uh, an anxiety internal monologue over buying weed. Just a, just a thick ass multi-page, many page paragraph. Yeah. Uh, with nary an indent in sight. All right, let's hop in. Let's hop in. All right. A counselor, Randy, with an eye, with a mustache like a Mountie, had told him in the outpatient treatment program he'd gone through two years ago that he seemed insufficiently committed to the course of action that would be required to remove substances from his lifestyle. He'd had to buy a new bong at Bogart's in Porter Square, Cambridge, because whenever he finished the last of the substances on hand, he always threw out all of his bongs and pipes, screens and tubes and rolling papers and roach clips, lighters and visine and Pepto-Bismol and cookies and frosting to eliminate all future temptation. He'd always felt a sense of optimism and firm resolve after he'd discarded the materials. He'd bought the new bong and laid in fresh supplies this morning, getting back home with everything well before the woman had said she would come. He thought of the new bong and new little packet of round brass screens in the Bogart's bag on his kitchen table in the sunlit kitchen and could not remember what color this new bong was. The last one had been orange, the one before that a dusky rose color that had turned muddy at the bottom from resin in just four days. He could not remember the color of this new last and final bong. He considered getting up to check the color of the bong he'd be using, but decided that obsessive checking and convulsive movements could compromise the atmosphere of casual calm he needed to maintain while he waited, protruding but not moving for the woman he'd met at a design session for his agency's small campaign for her small theater company's new Wedekind Festival while he waited for this woman, with whom he'd had intercourse twice, <laughs> to honor her casual promise. He tried to decide whether the woman was pretty. Another thing he laid in when he committed himself to one last marijuana vacation was petroleum jelly. When he smoked marijuana, he tended to masturbate a great deal, whether or not there were opportunities for intercourse opting when he smoked for masturbation over intercourse, and the petroleum jelly kept him from returning to normal function, all tender and sore. <laughs> he was also hesitant to get up and check the color of his bong because he would have to pass right by the telephone console to get to the kitchen, and he didn't want to be tempted to call the woman who said she would come again because he felt creepy about bothering her about something he'd represented as so casual and was afraid that several audio hang-ups on her answering device would look even creepier, and also he felt anxious about maybe tying up the line at just the moment when she called, as she certainly would. He decided to get call waiting added to his audio phone service for a nominal extra charge, then remembered that since this was positively the last time he would or even could what Randy, with an I, had called an addiction every bit as rapacious as pure alcoholism, there would be no real need for call waiting since a situation like the present one could never arise again. This line of thinking almost caused him to become angry. Sorry, one second. My yeah. dad's calling. It's his birthday. I should <laughs> pause one second. <laughs> okay, we're back. Dad says hi. <laughs> um, where did I end? Boop, boop, boop. Uh, there would be no... 
there would be no real need for call waiting since a situation like the present one could never arise again. This line of thinking almost caused him to become angry. To ensure the composure with which he sat waiting in light in his chair, he focused his senses on his surroundings. No part of the insect he'd seen was now visible. The clicks of his portable clock were really composed of three smaller clicks, signifying, he supposed, preparation, movement, and readjustment. He began to grow disgusted with himself for wanting so anxiously, waiting so anxiously for the promised arrival of something that had stopped being fun anyway. He didn't even know why he liked it anymore. It made his mouth dry and his eyes dry and red and his face sag. And he hated it when his face sagged. It was as if all the integrity of all the muscles in his face was eroded by marijuana. And he got terribly self-conscious about the fact that his face was sagging and had long ago forbidden himself to smoke dope around anyone else. He didn't even know what its draw was anymore. He couldn't even be around anyone else if he smoked marijuana, marijuana that same day. It made him so self-conscious. And the dope often gave him a painful case of pleurisy if he smoked it for more than two straight days of heavy, continuous smoking in front of the interlaced viewer in his bedroom. It made his thoughts jut out crazily in jagged directions and made him stare raptly like an unbright child at entertainment ca cartridges. When he laid in film cartridges for a vacation with marijuana, he favored cartridges in which a lot of things blew up and crashed into each other, which he was sure an unpleasant fact specialist like Randy would point out had implications that were not good. Uh, same. <laughs> You're right. He pulled his necktie down smooth while he gathered his intellect, will, self-knowledge, and conviction and determined that when this latest woman came, as she surely would, this would simply be his very last marijuana debauch. He'd simply smoke so much so fast that it would be so unpleasant and the memory of it so repulsive that once he'd consumed it and gotten it out of his home and his life as quickly as possible, he would never want to do it again. He would make it his business to create a really bad set of debauched associations with the stuff in his memory. The dope scared him. It made him afraid. It wasn't that he was afraid of the dope. It was that smoking it made him afraid of everything else. It had long since stopped being a release or relief or fun. This last time, he would smoke the whole 200 grams, 100, 120 <laughs> grams cleaned and destemmed in four days, over an ounce a day, all in tight, heavy, economical one-hitters off a quality virgin bong, an incredible, insane amount per day. He'd make it a mission, treating it like a penance and behavior modification regimen all at once. He'd smoke his way through 30 high-grade grams a day, starting the moment he woke up and used ice water to detach his tongue from the roof of his mouth and took an antacid, averaging out to 200 or 300 heavy bong hits per day, an insane and deliberately unpleasant amount. <laughs> and he'd make it a mission to smoke it continuously, even though if the marijuana was as good as the woman claimed, he'd do five hits and then not want to take the trouble to load and one hit any more for at least an hour, but he would force himself to do it anyway. He would smoke it all, even if he didn't want it. Even if it started to make him dizzy and ill. He would use discipline and persistence and will and make the whole experience so unpleasant, so debased and debauched and unpleasant that his behavior would be henceforth modified. He'd never even want to do it again because the memory of the insane four days to come would be so firmly, terribly emblazoned in his memory. He'd cure himself by excess. He predicted that the woman, when she came, might want to smoke some of the 200 grands with him, hang out, hole up, listen to some of his impressive collection of Tito Puente recordings. Hell yeah. And probably have intercourse. He had never once had actual intercourse on marijuana. Frankly, the idea repelled him. Two dry mouths bumping <laughs> at each other, trying to kiss. 
his self-conscious thoughts twisting around on themselves like a snake on a stick while he bucked and snorted dryly above her, his swollen eyes red and his face sagging so that its slack folds maybe touched limply the <laughs> folds of her own loose sagging face as it sloshed back and forth on his pillow, its mouth working dryly. The thought was repellent. He decided he'd have her toss him what she'd promised to bring and then would, from a distance, toss back to her the $1,250 U.S. in large bills and tell her not to let the door hit her on the butt on the way out. He'd say ass instead of butt. He'd be so rude and unpleasant to her that the memory of his lack of basic decency basic decency and of her tight offended face would be a further disincentive ever in the future to risk calling her repeating the course of action he had now committed himself to he had never been so anxious for the arrival of a woman he did not want to see (laughs) he remembered clearly the last woman he'd involved in his trying just one more vacation with dope and drawn blinds the last woman had been something called an appropriation artist which seemed to mean that she copied and embellished other art and then sold it through a prestigious Marlborough Street gallery. She had an artistic manifesto that involved radical feminist themes. He'd let her give him one of her smaller paintings, which covered half the wall over his bed and was of a famous film actress whose name he always had a hard time recalling and a less famous film actor. The two of them entwined in a scene from a well-known old film, a romantic scene, an embrace copied from a film history textbook and much enlarged and made stilted and with obscenities scrawled all over it in bright red letters. It's an insane thing to have in your bedroom. <laughs> I can just imagine that. That is a very great description of some kind of like bad, bad new wave yes. art. The last woman had been sexy but not pretty as the woman he now didn't want to see but was waiting anxiously for was pretty in a faded, withered Cambridge way that made her seem pretty but not sexy. The appropriation artist had been led to believe that he was a former speed addict, intravenous addiction to methamphetamine hydrochloride. Here we have our first footnote. Please hold. The footnote is uh, methamphetamine hydrochloride, a.k.a. crystal meth. Thank you. Short footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's what you remember telling that one. He had even described the awful taste of hydrochloride in the addict's mouth immediately after injection. He researched the subject carefully. She had been further led to believe that marijuana kept him from using the drug with which he really had a problem, and so that if he seemed anxious to get some lunch she'd offered to get him some, it was only because he was heroically holding out against much darker, deeper, more addictive urges, and he needed her to help him. He couldn't quite remember when or how she'd been given all these impressions. He had not sat down and outright bold-faced lied to her. It had been more of an impression he'd conveyed and nurtured and allowed to gather its own life and force. The insect was now entirely visible. It was on the shelf that had held his digital equalizer. The insect might have never actually retreated all the way back into the hole in the shelf's girder. What looked like its re-emergence might have just been a change in his attention or the two windows light or the visual context of his surroundings. The girder protruded from the wall and was a triangle of dull steel with holes for shelves to fit into. The metal shelves that held his audio equipment were painted a dark industrial green and were originally made for holding canned goods. Tell me more about this audio equipment. Well, they were designed to be extra kitchen shelves. This insect sat inside its dark, shiny case with an immobility that seemed like the gathering of a force. It sat like the hull of a vehicle from which the engine had been for the moment removed. It was dark and had a shiny case and antennae that protruded but did not move. 
He had to use the bathroom. His last piece of contact from the appropriation artist with whom he had had intercourse and who during intercourse had sprayed some sort of perfume up into the air from a mister she held in her left hand as she lay beneath him, making a wide variety of sounds and spraying perfume up into the air so that he felt the cold mist of it settling on his back and shoulders and was chilled and repelled. His last piece of contact after he'd gone into hiding with the marijuana she'd gotten for him had been a card she'd mailed him that was a pastiche photo of a doormat of coarse green plastic grass with welcome on it and next to it a flattering publicity photo of the appropriation artist from her back bay gallery and between them an unequal sign which was an equal sign with a diagonal slash across it and also an obscenity he had assumed was directed at him majusculed in red grease pencil along the bottom with multiple exclamation points she had been offended because he had seen her every day for 10 days. Then when she'd finally obtained 50 grams of genetically enhanced hydroponic marijuana for him, he had said that she'd saved his life and he was grateful. And the friends for whom he'd promised to get some were grateful. And she had to go right now because he had an appointment and had to take off, but that he would doubtless be calling her later that day. And they'd shared a moist kiss. And she said she could feel his heart pounding right through his suit coat and she had driven away in her rusty, unmuffled car, and he had gone and moved his own car to an underground garage several blocks away, and had run back and drawn the clean blinds and curtains, and changed the audio message on his answering machine to one that described an emergency departure from town, and had drawn and locked his bedroom blinds, and had taken the new rose-colored bong out of its Bogart's bag, and was not seen for three days, and ignored over two dozen audio messages and protocols and e-notes expressing concern over his message's emergency, and had never contacted her again. He had hoped she would assume he had succumbed again to methamphetamine hydrochloride and was sparing her the agony of his descent back into the hell of chemical dependence. What, had, what it really was was that he had again decided those 50 grams of resin-soaked dope, which had been so potent that on the second day it had given him an anxiety attack so paralyzing that he had gone to the bathroom in a Tufts University commemorative ceramic stein to avoid leaving his bedroom, represented his very last debauch ever with dope, and that he had to cut himself off from all possible future sources of temptation and supply, and this surely included the appropriation artist who had come with the stuff at precisely the time she'd promised, he recalled, from the street outside. Was that sentence like a page long? Uh, it, was, it was pretty long. <laughs> pretty long. From the street outside came the sound of a dumpster being emptied into an EWB land barge, EWD land barge. His shame at what she might, on the other hand, perceive as his slimy, phallocentric conduct toward her <laughs> made it easier for him to avoid her as well. Though not shame, really. More like being uncomfortable at the thought of it. He had had to launder his bedding twice to get the smell of the perfume out. He went into the bathroom to use the bathroom, making it a point to look neither at the insect visible on the shelf to his left, nor at the telephone console on its lacquer workstation to the right. He was committed to touching neither. Where was the woman who had said she'd come? The new bong in the Bogart's bag was orange, meaning he might have misremembered the bong before it as orange. It was a rich autumnal orange that lightened to more of a citrus orange when its plastic cylinder was held up to the late afternoon light of the window over the kitchen sink. The metal of its stem and bowl were, was rough stainless steel, the kind with a grain, unpretty and all business. The bong was half a meter tall and had a weighted base covered in soft, false suede. Its orange plastic was thick 
and the carb on the side opposite the stem had been raggedly cut so that rough shards of plastic protruded from the little hole. It might well hurt his thumb when he smoked, which he decided to just consider part of the penance he would undertake after the woman had come and gone. He left the door to the bathroom open so that he would be sure to hear the telephone when it sounded or the buzzer to the front doors of his condominium complex when it sounded. In the bathroom, his throat suddenly closed and he wept hard for two or three seconds before the weeping stopped abruptly and he could not get it to start again. It was now over four hours since the time the woman had casually committed to come. Was he in the bathroom or in his chair near the window and near his telephone console and the insect and the window that admitted a strange... A rectangular bar of light when he began to wait. The light through this window was coming at an angle more and more oblique. Its shadow had become a parallelogram. The light through the southwest window was straight and reddening. He had thought he needed to use the bathroom, but was unable to. He tried putting a whole stack of film cartridges into the dock of the disk drive and then turning on the huge teleputer in his bedroom. He could see the piece of appropriation art in the mirror above the TP. That's that's teleputer. Teleputer, yep. He lowered the. It's a telephone and a computer. It's a, tele, tele, it's a video phone. Yeah. Uh, he lowered the volume all the way and pointed the remote device at the TP like some sort of weapon. He sat on the edge of the bed with his elbows on his knees and scanned the stack of cartridges. Each cartridge in the dock dropped on command and began to engage the drive with an insectile click and whir when he scanned it but he was unable to distract himself with the TP because he was unable to stay with any one entertainment cartridge for more than a few seconds. It's like Quibi. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the moment he recognized what exactly was on one cartridge, he had a strong, anxious feeling that there was something more entertaining on another cartridge and that he was potentially missing it. He realized that he would have plenty of time to enjoy all the cartridges and realized intellectually that the feeling of deprived panic over missing something made no sense. The viewer hung on the wall, half again as large as the piece of feminist art. He scanned cartridges for some time. The telephone console sounded during this inter interval of anxious scanning. He was up and moving back out toward it before the first ring was completed, flooded with either excitement or relief, the TP's remote device still in his hand. But it was only a friend and colleague calling, and when he heard the voice that was not the woman who had promised to bring what he'd committed the next several days to banishing from his life forever... He was almost sick with disappointment, with a great deal of mistaken adrenaline now shining and ringing in his system, and he got off the line with the colleague to clear the line and keep it available for the woman so fast that he was sure his colleague perceived him as either angry with him or just plain rude. He was further upset at the thought that his answering the telephone this late in the day did not jibe with the emergency message about being unreachable that would be on his answering machine if the colleague called back after the woman had come and gone and he'd shut the whole system of his life down. And he was standing over the telephone console trying to decide whether the risk of the colleague or someone else from the agency calling back was sufficient to justify changing the audio message on the answering machine device to describe an emergency departure this evening instead of this afternoon. But he decided he felt that since the woman had definitely committed to coming, his leaving the message unchanged would be a gesture of fidelity to her commitment and might somehow, in some oblique way, strengthen that commitment. The EWD land barge was emptying dumpsters all up and down the street. He returned to his chair near the window. The disk drive and TP viewer were still on in his bedroom and he could see through the angle of the bedroom's doorway the lights from the high-definition screen 
blink and shift from one primary color to another in the dim room, and for a while he killed time casually by trying to imagine what entertaining scenes on the unwatched viewer the changing colors and intensities might signify. The chair faced the room instead of the window. Reading while waiting for marijuana was out of the question. (laughs) He considered masturbating, but did not. He didn't reject the idea so much as not react to it and watch as it floated away. He thought very broadly of desires and ideas being watched but not acted upon. He thought of impulses being starred of expression and drying out and floating dryly away and felt on some level that this had something to do with him and his circumstances and what if this grueling final debauch he'd committed himself to didn't somehow resolve the problem would surely have to be called his problem but he could not even begin to try to see how the image of desiccated impulses floating dryly related to either him or the insect, which had retreated back into its hole in the angled girder, because at this precise time, his telephone and his intercom to the front door's buzzer both sounded at the same time, both loud and tortured and so abrupt, they sounded yanked through a very small hole into the great balloon of colored silence he sat in, waiting, and he moved first toward the telephone console, then over his over toward his intercom module, then convulsively back toward the sounding phone, and then tried somehow to move toward both at once, finally, so that he stood splay-legged, arms wildly out as if something's been flung, splayed, entombed between the two sounds, without a thought in his head. Uh, Insanely relatable. That's Ken. (laughs) That's Ken Erdetti. We've Uh, got a couple pages left to to make it 10. Should we uh, keep going? Well, that's twenty minutes of uh, of talking okay. or of, of reading, so let's call it there for right. for this one. Uh, yeah, I like Ken. Poor Ken. <laughs> He's got. <laughs> I forget Ken's job because he has. I don't know if it's audio equipment for work or if he likes to listen to music. Well, he is a Tito Puente fan, so major points for that. Yeah. Uh, Tito Puente, an, an early uh, fan, uh, an early fandom of mine as well. Uh, the. Uh... I, I, f- I forgot that the, you know, the great American novel in- involves like a rich description of a bong on page like 25. <laughs> yes. uh, it's, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I love the idea of, of debauching yourself as a form into like actual unpleasantness as a form of like flagellation. Yeah. Uh, it's great. And I love all this uh, tech stuff that he, this like early, this, these 90s vision of an, an early future. Yeah, it's funny. It's both like he basically understood like he streaming wasn't really a concept yet, but almost almost like the same behavior, the streaming behaviors of like yes. not really being able to decide what to watch or like watching something and being immediately wanting to watch something else. Yeah, that has filtered through like DVDs, basically. Yeah, that irritation uh, that you have so many options and things that immediately upon starting one thing, you have like a background irritation that you might be what you could be watching something better. Yeah, there's yeah. always there's always some kind of better option out there. If only you had curated your streaming selection just a little bit better. Uh, on the last two episodes. I was struggling for um, my third example of cultural um, insanity runes. Yes. And I remembered, because this was the first, the thing that actually came up that that started this conversation. Uh, I was talking about uh, when that Taylor Swift album came out and a bunch of of stands got mad that it didn't get a high enough rating on Pitchfork. Oh, yes. It was Pitchfork is a thing that drives people insane the more they think about it. it. That whatever 
the pitchfork review of something is it is always on unple- like it it is unpleasing to to everyone you know yeah it's funny that that pitchfork because of the numerical ratings drives people more nuts than like a rolling stone review yeah. although rolling stone does starred reviews and it did piss people off i think Taylor got four out of five, which is an excellent yes. score for Rolling Stone. Yes. And I do remember Stan's being like, why not five? Uh, four is why, pretty good. Why not five, dude? This album's perfect. Just give it the five. I'm like, give it your own five. Yes. That Fucking t- asshole. I was also thinking about that tweet. There were somebody collected a bunch of pitchfork reviews that was like of Taylor Swift and Dua Lipa and like, I don't know, maybe Lord or something. And they were all like, 7.6, and then and their comment was just admit you hate women. I'm just, like, these are all just good say re- you hate women and go. Uh, anyway, so that was one of the it was Pitchfork, Infinite Jest, and of course, Chapo Trap House things that that by their very existence seem to drive people insane. Yeah, uh, I'm sure listeners out there, uh, suggest other ones to me. I, I would like to, to curate a, a larger list of the of these things of yeah. things that that drive people to insanity. Yeah. Uh, age gaps in relationships. Age gaps in relationships. <laughs> that, that's not. That's not a thing. That's not. You know. That's not a, a a media product. That is just simply something that makes people nuts. Uh, though I think that Molly and I solved that issue once and for all. But I don't know if you're ready for that conversation. We we aren't. I don't. I don't think we're ready for that conversation. Uh, we'll keep that. We'll, we'll drop it on a string. We'll or keep something. that that information secret to us. Um, once once we are ready to reveal our true mysteries yes. to the audience. <laughs> Uh, I've got another thing, but I'll save it for the next episode. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for listening, reading along. I feel like I've, now because it's been a week break between these, I feel like I've been living in this guy's weed anxiety nightmare for uh, ten days. That's the thing is like some of these the the bits are going to be like shorter, and some of the bits it's going to be real long. There's there's going to be episodes of this podcast where I'm just reading footnotes. Sure. Like I I shit you not. Yeah, and I'm sure that there will be segments. Just given on how the how this uh uh I can already tell this book is written, I'm sure there will be stretches of this where we are like inside the same thought of the same guy's head for like multiple episodes. Yeah, I actually went I went on Wikipedia after doing a few of these episodes to just like refresh myself with the general plot. The plot's pretty simple. <laughs> but it's it's not that complicated. The complicated thing is the way he describes all the thoughts in everyone's yeah. sweet little heads. Uh bring back let's let's hear some more tennis. We're getting more tennis. Tennis, anyone? Eh. All right. Eh. Shall we? Yes. Move on? Okay, goodbye. All right. Bye-bye.